This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and you're listening to Episode 1. Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the latest research can help in your home and in your classroom. Welcome. It's great to have you here. I'm Liz, and I'm the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast, a place where there is relevant and interesting content, a place where you'll get tips and ideas that you can use straight away, and a place that will help you understand your child or education a little better. For many of our episodes, I'll be interviewing researchers, teachers, parents and authors. But for today, for episode one, I'll be talking about healthy eating in young children. We all have plenty of opinions on how to encourage young children to eat healthily, but the information I'm presenting to you today is taken from five research articles from Australia, the UK and the USA. For details about what articles I've specifically used, please go to lizesearlylearningspot.com and click on the podcast tab and look for episode one. There you'll find the show notes, the list of articles I've used. You'll also find a free downloadable printable on healthy eating that you can use with your children. And you'll find the text for today's podcast. So let's get started. According to research, most parents have the goal of healthy eating for their little ones. But often it's the habits of a lifetime that get in the way that mean that children aren't eating as well as they could be. What specifically do we as parents find gets in the way of our healthy plans for our children? Apparently, fussy eating is number one on the list of frustrations for parents. Children who are picking at their food, they won't eat what they're asked to eat. Sometimes we just don't know what to do about it. The second destroyer of healthy eating plans is our busy lifestyles. Parents are exhausted, they're stressed, they come home at the end of the day and they're just so tired they don't know how to think straight, let alone think about what's for dinner today and how healthy is it. Food bills can put a big dent in our pocket, so the cost of food can be a prime consideration for some families. And then there are the cultural expectations. In our own families, what kind of foods do we eat? Do we eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables? How are they cooked? Do we use a lot of oil? Do we stir fry? Do we grill? Do we deep fry? Do we have the expectation that our children will finish everything on their plate? Cultural expectations can play a huge role in the food that gets put on the table because that's where our habits have come from. The last stressor I want to mention is that Sometimes we use food to reward or indulge our children. We all like to spoil our kids sometimes, and food is a great way of doing that. Unfortunately, it isn't really in the best interests of the child. The occasional reward or indulgence is not a problem, but if it's a regular pattern and a regular habit, then that could lead to long-term issues. One piece of research found that the most common vegetable eaten by both adults and 15-month-olds was potatoes. Unfortunately, these potatoes took the form of french fries. So it seems that for many adults, valuing healthy practices is much easier than implementing them. We've talked about what gets in the way of our healthy eating plans and now we're going to talk about another piece of the puzzle and that is parent feeding goals. Now parent feeding goals can be either health oriented 
or non-health oriented. If they're focused on health, it means they're thinking about natural ingredients, no additives, no artificial things added. They're just focused on food being for their child's health. If their feeding goals are non-health oriented, they're thinking more about the cost of food, the speed of preparation, whether they're familiar with those foods and know how to prepare them, or a child's mood. Perhaps a child is saying, I don't want to eat that, I want to eat something else. So a parent's highest priority, their feeding goals, whether they're health or non-health oriented, will determine the actual foods kids eat. For example, mothers who don't really think about food as preventing disease tend to give their kids less fruit and more fat because they're not really thinking about it in the same way. So research has found that it's our habits that win out as parents. So what steps can we take to improve those habits for our kids? When we're exhausted, do we have a 10-minute healthy recipe that we can create with whatever is in our fridge or in our pantry, or do we pick up the phone and call for pizza? Getting back to fussy eating, according to parents, 25 to 40% of their infants and toddlers experience feeding problems of some kind. Most of these feeding problems just mean picky or fussy eating. It doesn't mean they're underweight or doing badly in any way. They're just refusing to eat particular foods or maybe they haven't got much of an appetite. There are, of course, much more serious issues such as infantile anorexia, but they're a much smaller percentage. The problem is, though, it's not just the child that's being picky and fussy. It affects the whole family. It makes mealtimes stressful and mothers of picky eaters tend to be stressed and they can struggle with depression and blame themselves for their child's issues. So they often feel isolated. Support is really important where mothers can express their emotions and not feel like they're being judged. And research has also found that support groups are better when the parents are from similar ethnic social groups so they feel automatically more trusting towards each other and open about their struggles. If you're looking for help, there's a really great blog called Crib to Table, Crib to Table, and it's written by a lady who's working on her doctorate in this area of healthy foods for young ones, and she has a child herself, so her blog is very practical and it's based on the latest research. She has some really good ideas on how to introduce foods to children, how to go into the kitchen with them, how to manage the fussy eating, etc. If you want some ideas for being in the kitchen with kids, Jennifer from Study at Home Mama has a series called 31 Days of Kids' Kitchen Activities because being in the kitchen is excellent for kids. Introducing new foods. Sometimes it seems so easy and sometimes it's just not. Research has found that children need to be exposed to new foods at least 15 times before they'll trust it and even try it. Then after you've tried to introduce it to them 15 times, they then need another 10 to 15 times before they'll actually like it. This is a lot of times to try and it's not like you're trying 15 times in one day, it's 15 times over the month. It's not just that the child's being stubborn. 
around the age of two, children in a normal part of their development develop something called neophobia, which is fear of what's new. Now, many parents are unaware of this, and so they don't realize, I didn't when my children were really young, they don't realize the importance of persevering with introducing foods so that the kids can become more familiar with those foods and therefore the phobia, the fear of the newness, decreases and then they'll try it and go from there. But it's not just, oh, try it three or four times. They don't like it, so I'll toss it. No, it takes a lot more than that. And it's not the stubbornness. That's one thing I feel it's really important to get across. It's actually a developmental response. Since the majority of parents apparently only make five attempts, according to research, not what I'm saying, they make five attempts at introducing a new food to a toddler. And so their diet is being limited because they're trying five times. It seems enough. The kid doesn't like it. Well, let's just try something else. So when they've tried five times, they need to try 10 more times before the child will actually look at that vegetable. Parent modeling is crucial. If you want your children to eat something, you're going to have to eat it yourself. The kids are going to have to see it on your plate regularly so that it's seen as normal and that takes away the fear of the new as well. If your child has peers that enjoy eating their fruits and vegetables, that can be a really positive influence and be very helpful. However, you do need to be a bit careful because if their peers reject certain fruits or vegetables, that has an extremely strong effect on a child. And according to research, this kind of peer influence is very difficult to overcome. If you're working in an early childhood context, this is a really important thing to keep in mind because your children are eating together every day. This issue of how much they influence each other, as well as the neophobia. Apparently, children are more likely to eat a food if their mother ate the food when they were pregnant. If you would like your child to be the queen or king of kale, you'd better be sure you're munching on it during pregnancy. Children do not have any trouble at all adapting to the taste of fat, sugar and salt, which is why it's so easy to resort to those when we're desperate. Pressuring kids to eat, is that good or is it not so good? Well, again, according to research, pressuring children to eat can increase their neophobia and make life even more difficult. The more you push that Brussels sprout into your child's mouth, the more they're going to be afraid of that food. On the other hand, 83% of young children will eat more when prompted by their mothers. Even though they're full, they're satisfied, if their mother prompts them to eat, they'll keep eating. Now, this can affect a child's ability to recognize and respond to feelings of hunger and fullness and lead to weight gain. One paper found a direct correlation between the number of prompts mothers gave their children to eat and the number of calories consumed. In other words, mothers who kept prompting their kids to eat all the time ended up having children who really ate way more than they needed. Children who are given larger portions at each meal also eat more than they actually need. There's a strong relationship 
between feeling good about our bodies and developing long-term healthy behaviors. Kids who feel good about their bodies are more likely to develop long-term healthy behavior. So even while children are really young, it's important to talk about how great the body is, how amazing, how miraculous it is, all these things that they can do and make them feel really good about their bodies that will help develop a positive relationship with their bodies and with food. The next thing I want to talk about is feeding strategies. Feeding strategies are the approaches that we take to control what our kids eat how much they eat, and when children eat. So some strategies build a positive self-image and a positive relationship with food, and some do not. Now, parents have the best of intentions, generally speaking, but some methods can have unintended consequences and lead to weight gain and disordered or unhealthy eating behaviours in adulthood. If we want to encourage healthy eating in our preschoolers, the practices that foster healthy eating are repeatedly expose them to new and special foods, to verbally praise them for good food choices, to prepare and eat meals together, to not label food as good and bad, not to get hung up on the good bad thing, not to fuss if your kids don't want to eat, And children should be able to choose the amount of healthy food that they want to eat and they should feed themselves. Feeding strategies that aren't very helpful are pressuring kids to eat, using food as a reward, to withhold food as a punishment, to allow free access to junk food. So say you're buying buckets of chips and they're all in your cupboard and kids can go and get them whenever they want. That doesn't work. Making kids finish what's on their plate and expecting kids to eat foods that we won't eat ourselves. So what can we do? Firstly, focus on developing positive relationships with foods. Two, be persistent but not pushy when introducing new foods. Three, plan ahead for those exhausting days with quick, easy recipes. Or if you're making casseroles, etc., make a double batch, halve it and freeze it. Having frozen meals that you've pre-prepared in the freezer is a brilliant way of dealing with stressful days. Fourth, eat together as a family. And five, make meals and snacks healthy and not about punishment or reward. Lastly, don't give up and don't be too hard on yourself. Change takes time. Decide on one thing you could do or stop doing that will be better for you and for your kids and focus on that first. We all want our kids to be happy and healthy, but it is easier said than done. A few more interesting points that came out of the research that I read was that girls who have parents who restrict snack foods are more likely to feel bad about themselves after they eat those foods. If we're too restrictive with kids, we set them up for that bad, guilty feeling as they get older. Parents who really restrict their two-year-old intake because they're afraid of overweight, so say you have a two-year-old and he's overweight and so the parents restrict the food, Initially, that's very successful at regulating the child's weight. However, by five years of age, this practice of restriction tends to predict higher weight scores. 
Children who are, say, three or four-year-old, if they've had really restricted foods or emotional overeating, they're overeating because of some sort of stress and we give them sweets and such, that sort of pattern tends to continue into adulthood. So that's just if they're even three or four years old. This can be a very long-term problem that is really hard to deal with. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I've created a free children's reader called I'm So Healthy that you're very welcome to use with your kids. You can download it at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Click on the podcast tab at the top of the web page and then look for podcast one and you'll find the show notes, you'll find the link to the reader and you'll find the list of journal articles that I used for this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd ask you to please go to iTunes and leave a review and a rating. It helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me to learn a little more about early childhood research and I wish you happy teaching and learning. Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at www.lizesearlylearningspot.com.